Front Matter and Preface to Nigger of the Narcissus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Nigger of the Narcissus by Joseph Conrad. Front Matter and Preface. The Nigger of the Narcissus. A Tale of the Foxhole by Joseph Conrad. Copyright 1897-1914 by Doubleday, Page and Company. To Edward Garnett, this tale about my friends of the sea. To my readers in America. From that evening when James Waite joined the ship, late for the muster of the crew, to the moment when he left us in the open sea, shrouded in sailcloth through the open port, I had much to do with him. He was in my watch. A negro in a British forecastle is a lonely being. He has no chums. Yet James Waite, afraid of death and making her his accomplice, was an impostor of some character, mastering our compassion, scornful of our sentimentalism, triumphing over our suspicions. But in the book he is nothing. He is merely the center of the ship's collective psychology and the pivot of the action. Yet he, who in the family circle and amongst my friends, is familiarly referred to as the nigger, remains very precious to me. For the book written round him is not the sort of thing that can be attempted more than once in a lifetime. It is the book by which, not as a novelist perhaps, but as an artist striving for the utmost sincerity of expression, I am willing to stand or fall. Its pages are the tribute of my unalterable and profound affection for the ships, the seamen, the winds, and the great sea, the moulders of my youth, the companions of the best years of my life. After writing the last words of that book, in the revulsion of feeling before the accomplished task, I understood that I had done with the sea, and that henceforth I had to be a writer. And almost without laying down the pen I wrote a preface trying to express the spirit in which I was entering on the task of my new life. That preface, on advice which I now think was wrong, was never published with the book. But the late W. E. Henley, who had the courage at that time, 1897, to serialize my nigger in the new review, judged it worthy to be printed as an afterword at the end of the last installment of the tale. I am glad that this book which means so much to me is coming out again, under its proper title of The Nigger of the Narcissus, and under the auspices of my good friends and publishers, Messrs. Doubleday, Page, and Company, into the light of publicity. Half the span of a generation has passed since W. E. Henley, after reading two chapters, sent me a verbal message. Tell Conrad that if the rest is up to the sample, it shall certainly come out in the new review. The most gratifying recollection of my writer's life. And here is the suppressed preface. 1914. Joseph Conrad. Preface. A work that aspires, however humbly, to the condition of art should carry its justification in every line. 
and art itself may be defined as a single-minded attempt to render the highest kind of justice to the visible universe by bringing to light the truth manifold in one underlying its every aspect it is an attempt to find in its forms in its colors in its lights and its shadow in the aspects of matter and in the facts of life what of each is fundamental what is enduring and essential their one illuminating and convincing quality the very truth of their existence the artist then like the thinker or the scientist seeks the truth and makes his appeal impressed by the aspect of the world the thinker plunges into ideas the scientist into facts whence presently emerging they make their appeal to those qualities of our being that fittest best for the hazardous enterprise of living they speak authoritatively to our common sense to our intelligence to our desire of peace or to our desire of unrest not seldom to our prejudices sometimes to our fears often to our egoism but always to our credulity and their words are heard with reverence for their concern is with weighty matters with the cultivation of our minds and the proper care of our bodies with the attainment of our ambitions with the perfection of the means and the glorification of our precious aims it is otherwise with the artist confronted by the same enigmatical spectacle the artist descends within himself and in that lonely region of stress and strife if he be deserving and fortunate he finds the terms of his appeal his appeal is made to our less obvious capacities to that part of our nature which because of the warlike conditions of existence is necessarily kept out of sight within the more resisting and hard qualities like the vulnerable body within a steel armor his appeal is less loud more profound less distinct more stirring and sooner forgotten yet its effect endures forever the changing wisdom of successive generations discards ideas questions facts demolishes theories but the artist appeals to that part of our being which is not dependent on wisdom to that in us which is a gift and not an acquisition and therefore more permanently enduring he speaks to our capacity for delight and wonder to the sense of mystery surrounding our lives to our sense of pity and beauty and pain to the latent feeling of fellowship with all creation and to the subtle but invincible conviction of solidarity that knits together the loneliness of innumerable hearts to the solidarity in dreams and joy in sorrow in aspirations and illusions in hope and fear which binds men to each other which binds together all humanity the dead to the living and the living to the unborn it is only some such train of thought or rather of feeling that can in a measure explain the aim of the attempt made in the tale which follows to present an unrestful episode in the obscure lives of a few individuals out of all the disregarded multitude of the bewildered the simple and the voiceless for if any part of truth dwells in the belief confessed above it becomes evident that there is not a place of splendor or a dark corner of the earth that does not deserve if only a passing glance of wonder and pity 
The motive, then, may be held to justify the matter of the work, but this preface, which is simply an avowal of endeavor, cannot end here, for the avowal is not yet complete. Fiction, if it at all aspires to be art, appeals to the temperament. And in truth it must be, like painting, like music, like all art, the appeal of one temperament to all the other innumerable temperaments, whose subtle and resistless power endows passing events with their true meaning, and creates the moral, the emotional atmosphere of the place and time. Such an appeal to be effective must be an impression conveyed through the senses, and, in fact, it cannot be made in any other way, because temperament, whether individual or collective, is not amenable to persuasion. All art, therefore, appeals primarily to the senses, and the artistic aim, when expressing itself in written words, must also make its appeal through the senses, if its highest desire is to reach the secret spring of responsive emotions. It must strenuously aspire to the plasticity of sculpture, to the color of painting, and to the magic suggestiveness of music, which is the art of arts. And it is only through complete, unswerving devotion to the perfect blending of form and substance, it is only through an unremitting, never-discouraged care for the shape and ring of sentences that an approach can be made to plasticity, to color, and that light of magic suggestiveness may be brought to play for an evanescent instant over the commonplace surface of words, of the old, old words, worn thin, defaced by ages of careless usage. The sincere endeavor to accomplish that creative task, to go as far on that road as his strength will carry him, to go undeterred by faltering, weariness, or reproach, is the only valid justification for the worker in prose. And if his conscience is clear, his answer to those who, in the fullness of a wisdom which looks for immediate profit, demand specifically to be edified, consoled, amused, who demand to be promptly improved, or encouraged, or frightened, or shocked, or charmed, must run thus. My task which I am trying to achieve is by the power of the written word to make you hear, to make you feel, it is before all to make you see. That, and no more, and it is everything. If I succeed, you shall find there, according to your deserts, encouragement, consolation, fear, charm, all you demand, and perhaps also that glimpse of truth for which you have forgotten to ask. To snatch in a moment of courage from the remorseless rush of time, a passing phase of life is only the beginning of the task. The task approached in tenderness and faith is to hold up unquestioningly, without choice and without fear, the rescued fragment before all eyes in the light of a sincere mood. It is to show its vibration, its color, its form, and through its movement, its form, and its color, reveal the substance of its truth, disclose its inspiring secret, the stress and passion within the core of each convincing moment. In a single-minded attempt of that kind, if one be deserving and fortunate, one may perchance attain to such clearness of sincerity that, at last, the presented vision of regret or pity, 
of terror or mirth shall awaken in the hearts of the beholders that feeling of unavoidable solidarity of the solidarity and mysterious origin and toil and joy and hope in uncertain fate which binds men to each other and all mankind to the visible world it is evident that he who rightly or wrongly holds by the convictions expressed above cannot be faithful to any one of the temporary formulas of his craft the enduring part of them the truth which each only imperfectly veils should abide with him as the most precious of his possessions but they all realism romanticism naturalism even the unofficial sentimentalism which like the poor is exceedingly difficult to get rid of all these gods must after a short period of fellowship abandon him even on the very threshold of the temple to the stammerings of his conscience and to the outspoken consciousness of the difficulties of his work in that uneasy solitude the supreme cry of art for art itself loses the exciting ring of its apparent immorality it sounds far off it has ceased to be a cry and is heard only as a whisper often incomprehensible but at times and faintly encouraging sometimes stretched at ease in the shade of a roadside tree we watch the motions of a laborer in a distant field and after a time begin to wonder languidly as to what the fellow might be at we watch the movements of his body the waving of his arms we see him bend down stand up hesitate begin again it may add to the charm of an idle hour to be told the purpose of his exertions if we know he is trying to lift a stone to dig a ditch to uproot a stump we look with a more real interest at his efforts we are disposed to condone the jar of his agitation upon the restfulness of the landscape and even if in a brotherly frame of mind we may bring ourselves to forgive his failure we understood his object and after all the fellow has tried and perhaps he had not the strength and perhaps he had not the knowledge we forgive go on our way and forget and so it is with the workmen of art art is long and life is short and success is very far off and thus doubtful of strength to travel so far we talk a little about the aim the aim of art which like life itself is inspiring difficult obscured by mists it is not in the clear logic of a triumphant conclusion it is not in the unveiling of one of those heartless secrets which are called laws of nature it is no less great but only more difficult to arrest for the space of a breath the hands busy about the work of the earth and compel men entranced by the sight of distant goals to glance for a moment at the surrounding vision of form and color of sunshine and shadows to make them pause for a look for a sigh for a smile such is the aim difficult and evanescent and reserved only for a very few to achieve but sometimes by the deserving and the fortunate even that task is accomplished and when it is accomplished behold all the truth of life is there a moment of vision a sigh a smile 
and the return to an eternal rest. 1897, J.C. End of Front Matter and Preface